So when my middle child, who is now about to turn 16, when she was going into kindergarten on the very first day of school, I can remember dropping her and her older sister off at the school and having like this new sense of freedom and opportunity ahead of me. I even had a pair of running shoes on. I was going to go for a run. And so as I put everything that I was responsible for inside of the school, and I walked out the door and down the sidewalk in front of the school, I ran into my neighbor, my friend that lived across the street from me. And she said, Dinah, I had the weirdest dream last night about you. You were pregnant. And I said, ha, ha, like pregnant with a dissertation, because that's what I think's in my future. But you know what? <laughs> the adventure of a baby boy was ahead of me. He was born in April of that year, so you do the math. She was right. I was wrong. <laughs> For all of us, in all of our lives, and in every great story, there's a moment in time where we get the beginning of an adventure where we get the opening of something new, a new opportunity and adventure that God has in store for us. And that's what we have in Scripture this morning. Our Scripture passage is from the fourth chapter of Matthew, beginning with verse 17. It's a familiar Scripture passage, so I'm going to invite you to read it with me. Would you read it with me? From that time, Jesus began to proclaim, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. As he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets, and they followed him. As he went from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, in the boat with their father Zebedee, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father, and they followed him. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness among the people. Well, okay, I want to start with this. The invitation to a journey, the invitation to an adventure, is an ancient foundational truth for God's people. If we just look scripturally through the Hebrew Bible, we hear these words. To Abram, the Lord said, go, go from your country, your people, your home, and I will show you. To Moses, the Lord said, so now go, I am sending you to bring my people out of Egypt. To the Israelites wandering in the wilderness, the Lord our God says, you have stayed long enough on the mountain, go, go and take possession of the land. To Joshua, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land. Do not be afraid, do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you Wherever you go to Isaiah, go and tell my people to Jeremiah, you must go to everyone that I send you and say what I command you and to Jonah, go, go to the great city of Nineveh, that command go and the invitation, the invitation to the unknown, the invitation to an adventure is not unusual. It's not a weird story for God's people. It is a consistent message from Yahweh 
to his people. Now, follow me. Follow me might sound a little bit different. Follow me is the command that Jesus gives to Peter and Andrew, and it's a little bit different. The command, follow me, tells us that the Lord, the divine, is right in front of the fishermen. It's different from go because follow me tells us that the great I am is right in front of those men and he's inviting them to go on the adventure with him. And following, following in in the first century in Galilee, following is the activity that one would do with their rabbi, with their teacher. So Jesus's command is familiar to the people that he's in the middle of. Following was the invitation that a rabbi issued to his students, to his Talmudim. A disciple who followed a rabbi would do exactly what the rabbi did, as the rabbi did it, in order to learn what the rabbi knew and to live as the rabbi lived. So a rabbi passed on more than just information, which is what we expect from our teachers in schools or our professors in college. We expect that they give us good, solid information. We take that information and we transform our own lives. A rabbi instead would imprint. He would imprint his very lifestyle onto his students, onto those who followed him. The goal for the rabbi's followers was to become exactly like the rabbi. And the title of rabbi was a title of respect. Um, If I were to call a person my rabbi, it means more than just calling them my teacher, although we probably should call our teachers our rabbis. (laughs) They deserve more respect than they get, don't they? The title of rabbi implied, you are my master. You are my guide. And that's so true for our teachers as well. They are our guides. They, they lead us to what is good. Typically, a rabbi um, w- was sought out by applicants. So a rabbi didn't go out and recruit people to follow him. But at about age 15, when formal schooling ended, a, a boy in the Hebrew culture would go and seek out a rabbi to follow if a, if a boy wanted to study with a rabbi, he would ask, not can I study with you or can I learn from you, but he would ask, can I follow you? And Ray Vanderland says that it's likely that most of these students, most of these followers, these disciple applicants were turned away. They were turned down. A few were invited to follow a rabbi. And those chosen few, if they were invited by the rabbi, they were invited because they showed unusual giftedness. The rabbi thought that they had the intellectual capacity and the tenacious commitment to be as he was. So young men didn't turn this opportunity down. It was a great opportunity. I kind of imagine it looking something like if if my son Daniel, who is nine years old, sent an email to a professional athlete like J.J. Watt or Tim Duncan, then that athlete appeared on my doorstep and rang my doorbell and said, Mrs. Shelley, I want you to know that your son is extremely gifted, and I would like for him to come and train with me every day. Well, Keith wouldn't turn that down. I mean, we would send Daniel with the athlete, and that was kind of what was going on in first century uh, Galilee. 
If one didn't qualify to follow a rabbi, then those boys probably took on their family business. They became apprentices, and most likely in a family business, something like fishing, which is what we have in chapter 4 of Matthew. Now, more than likely, um, there were not a lot of fishermen on the Sea of Galilee. I don't know if it's because I, I've grown up with these Bible stories that I think, oh, four of the disciples were fishermen, and Jesus and his disciples spent a lot of time out on the sea in these boats. So that sea must have just been packed with fishermen. Well, that's not the case. There were probably on any given day about 15 to 20 fishermen on the Sea of Galilee. And that's because it was was a dangerous occupation for the people that lived around that sea. The sea was deep, the waters were rough, and the boats that the fishermen had to go out on that uh, sea were were very small. So that's what we have in chapter 4 of Matthew. We have some Jewish boys who weren't thought to be particularly gifted Jewish boys, who for whatever reason, it could be that they're just courageous, or it could be that they're desperate, aren't afraid to be right there next to the Sea of Galilee. While I would never presume to specify qualifications for a disciple of Jesus, as a professional witness, someone who watches people decide whether or not they're going to become Christians and follow Jesus' ways, I want you to know that the ability to stand in the face of fear is a determining factor. Whether courage is hardwired into us or it is demanded from us because of the circumstances that we find ourselves in, when you stand right up next to danger, it looks to me like you are prime picking for our Messiah. One thing that I think is really important to notice in this Bible story is about our Messiah, and that is that there is power in his words. Rightly so. At the beginning of John's gospel, we are told that the origin of this Messiah is that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So it stands to reason that the very words that he would speak to his followers, to those that he taught, would be powerful. So when Jesus walks up next to Peter and Andrew, and James, and John, and he speaks these words, follow me. They don't ask where. I mean, what? (laughs) That's a logical question. Where are you going? I think they rightly could have answered, asked that question, but they they don't ask it. They're not sitting around with nothing to do. They are at the Sea of Galilee. They are fishing. We get that they leave a place, they leave occupations, they leave families. I think many who knew their Hebrew Bible, when they heard this story that we hear in the fourth chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, would remember the story of Elisha that you can find in 1 Kings chapter 19. Elijah, 
who was the prophet with the direct line to God, is told by the Lord himself to go and anoint Elisha as his successor. And when he finds Elisha, Elisha is plowing in the field. And his response to the great prophet is this. He says, let me kiss my father and my mother goodbye, and then I will come with you. And then Elisha returns to his home, and he settles things there. And then, after settling everything and saying goodbye to his family, he sets out to follow the prophet. So what's different in Matthew? What's different is Matthew is that there's no finishing their tasks, there's no settling things at home, and they're given no explanation for where they're going. It's just this command, follow me, and the promise, and I will make you fish for people. You will be invited, you are invited to join in on bringing in the kingdom. You are invited to become a part of God's mission to humanity, and the disciples go. There's power in Jesus' words. They just go. I can't put their ability to go all on their giftedness uh, or on their ability to understand what Jesus is about. There is just simply power in Jesus' presence and in Jesus' words. And I believe that that power continues when Jesus' followers speak to one another Uh, theologian Alexander Shia says this, that words of hope and vitality, words of forgiveness, words that have with them a deep sense that you are accompanied by one who will never leave you, those words that we speak to one another, those words have power. You know, I just don't, automatically listen when another person tells me Jesus told me to tell you this I mean I don't know maybe you do but I have to kind of I have to kind of get it myself or I have to understand what's that message that you're telling me that Jesus said I believe in this story there's something to notice about the content of Jesus's words that we can use as a checkpoint When we are trying to figure out, is Jesus telling me this, or is it just my own stirring, or is this just somebody else trying to control me? We have clues to be able to decipher, yes, this is from Jesus, or no, this is not from Jesus. I'm finishing a book um, right now by uh, an author named Jason McKelly about his faith during cancer diagnosis and treatments. And when he writes about how chemotherapy robbed him of the qualities that have made him masculine, he remembers uh, his time. He goes, he goes right back to middle school, which was not a great time for any of us, right? <laughs> he remembers how in middle school he had this experience of being singled out and bullied because of his bad, broken-out complexion. And the sentence that I like in that chapter is this. He says, the drugs healed me of my acne, but Jesus cured me of my self-disgust. Jesus has a way of curing shame. I think that that's very important to Jesus, that we shed our shame. His words go after shame, and his words are never shaming. 
You know, words of shaming tell you that you're not worth it, that you have no worth. Jesus' words never say that. Here's what Jesus didn't say to the guys who are gathered along the Sea of Galilee. He didn't say, don't you guys have anything better to do? Guess you aren't very smart. I'm going to take you as my slave, and you're going to build me a palace. That's not what Jesus said. There is um, a teacher who's pretty popular right now on the Internet named Benjamin Zander. And he's the conductor of the Boston Philharmonic Symphony. And he wrote this book called The Art of Possibility. And in the book, he talks about each of us having within us two different selves. We have within us the calculating self that is pretty manipulative and tries to control. And then we also have within us the central self, which is the very wise self. And so he in. In his book, he describes the central self. What are the qualities of our wisdom, of our inner wisdom? And he says this about our our wisdom, our central self. The central self knows that not belonging and being insufficient are thoughts that are native and an illusion. So not belonging and being insufficient are thoughts that we all have. And they are thoughts that are not true. Being true wisdom. Jesus dispels this very lie when he calls his disciples. Jesus' call to Peter and Andrew, to James and John, and to you and me is two-part. First of all, it says you belong. And second of all, it says you are enough. Wisdom comes to light when these words are spoken. You belong and you are enough. Wisdom comes to light when these words are spoken in an inauguration speech. Wisdom comes to light when these words are spoken in a march address. But when more than that is said or less than that is said, true wisdom gets muddied. The fishermen, the fishermen don't apply to follow Jesus. They don't have to ask. Jesus is a very intrusive rabbi. He gets right in the middle of their stuff. And he commands them. His call is disruptive. His call is intrusive. And his call is radically inclusive and restorative. These guys that he calls as disciples, they may have been, they probably were, rejected by others. And the Messiah honors them when he commands them, follow me. And he honors them when he invites them, when he promises them, I will make you fish for people. You have the most significant work to do ahead of you. Towards the end of the Matthew, uh, Gospel of Matthew in chapter 16, Jesus has gathered all of his disciples together and he's speaking to them again about what it means to be a disciple. And he says this, whoever wants to be my disciple must take up their cross and what? Follow me. There it is again. Must take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for me, will save it. So here's what I suspect. I suspect 
that what we lose is worth losing and what we gain is better than we can expect. But I wanted you to hear from somebody who is a better risk taker than I am. I wanted you to hear from Wendy Meaden. So, Wendy, I'm going to ask you to come forward and to talk to us. I'm going to ask you a few questions about what it has been like to follow Jesus on mission to Piedras. Uh, Wendy actually just got back from Piedras. She went yesterday, took a group yesterday, right? Yeah. So you um, are uh, the leader of a group that ministers to the underprivileged in Piedras, Mexico, right? Would you like to fill out that a little bit more? Tell us, don't we have a connection with the pastor there? Sure. Okay. Absolutely. I think this is not on. Try it now. Okay. So for about nine or ten years now, this church has been amazing in that it is supporting a couple of orphanages, both with finances and in fellowship by sending missions, uh, missionaries like me and many of you all here uh, have been on a trip and we go down to serve two orphanages and some churches and some of them are in the Methodist system and it's just been a real privilege to be part of that uh, mission. I was invited by this church about 10 years ago to go on a trip and I was instantly in love with the people. And I felt like God was calling me to be part of that ministry. So it was your call was an all at once kind of call. It wasn't a gradual call. It was an all at once. You knew that was that you knew that was your mission. You knew that was your adventure. I felt like Jesus was calling me to that ministry and that he had prepared me. And I realized it at that point when I went on the mission trip that he had prepared me to be able to do that ministry. So what do you think you uh, left behind, or what do you lose when you take on this this mission, this this ministry? I think that's one of the things. Sometimes people don't know what to do, or they feel like they're very busy. Um, Yes, I have committed time to uh, walk into this ministry, but it's been such a blessing. So time and some finances, yes, but... um, the blessings that I've received and how I've grown as a result of it just are amazing compared to what I might have given up oh, along excellent. the way. Excellent. Anything you want to tell us about yesterday? Yesterday was amazing. Uh, if you want to actually experience firsthand what it means to lay your life down for Christ, then come with us to Mexico. You know, February 10th through 12th, we're going to be going down, visiting both orphanages, doing some work there. And uh, Pastor Ricardo, for example, the last 10 years, he has been parent to some 250 or more kids that were taken out of the home for abuse and neglect. And we've seen kids come while we're there at the orphanage, and they're dirty and they're hungry, they're afraid, and Ricardo and his wife take them under their wings, and the other children there love on them, and instantaneously, they're like family. So if if you want to see what that looks like, someone totally giving their lives for these children, it's an amazing thing to behold. The other orphanage, Pastor Paulino and his wife, Gilberta, they also were called to take care of 28 now, severely handicapped children and adults in their home. And pretty much the authorities bring these 
residents to them, they've been abandoned by their families. Some of them are just found on the street. Uh, Some of them are brought to the home, and they promise Paulino, I'll come every Saturday and I'll bring something for my child to eat or to visit, and then they never come back. And so he, again, is another example of really our Lord telling these kids, you are worth it. Mm -hmm. You're an orphan, but you're not an orphan in my sight. And so, again, if you would like to experience what that looks like, I guess it's taught me that uh, Jesus can use whatever little gifts I might have, just like I know he can use whatever gifts he's given you all to serve him. And we don't have to be perfect. One of my favorite scriptures is, you know, Ephesians 2.10. We are his workmanship, and we're created anew through Jesus Christ to do the good things that he's prepared for us to do since long ago, meaning eternity. He had a purpose for each one of you all to do whatever he has for you to do. He's given me Mexico, and I've just been very thankful that this church has been so supportive by sending mission teams down and by supporting the orphans because they have something to eat because of this church. They have clothes. They have a warm bed, and they're not abandoned. They're not abused anymore. They are loved, and they are living like children of the king. Mm -hmm. They are not living like orphans. They are so overjoyed, and we saw it yesterday. So often I think we forget, and we live like orphans. Mm -hmm. But we are children of the living God, and he can do anything through you guys I never in a million years thought we would be doing, or I would be doing what I'm doing the last 10 years. And it's just been an incredible blessing. So I invite you all to join in the blessing and the adventure Very good. with us yeah. in February. Good. So I see it as my job as your tour guide to point out good rabbis to you. You can follow her. Would you stand and join me in praying for Wendy and her ministry? Gracious and loving God, I bless you and I thank you because you are a good provider. Uh, And more than anything that you give us, you provide a good adventure for us where we can learn more about you and more about one another. Lord, I ask your blessing upon Wendy and I ask your blessing upon those pastors who live in Piedras. I ask that through them... You would bring love and restoration to those children who were designated by their first homes as orphans. Lord, I ask that through us, they would know that they are your beloved sons and daughters. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.